Uh, so we started, I don't know, it must have been the week before Shavuot, so it's very a couple of months. Uh, we talked about, about Torah and the study of Torah. And obviously this is a global or uh, a, a very broad issue uh, for, for us as, you know, as Jews. We know that this is essentially the defining quality, the defining item uh, of, of, of the Jewish nation has been their obsession with Torah. You know, you go back to any point in history uh, and you see Jews dedicating themselves to Torah study as a life's pursuit. This is what kids, when they dreamt of being great, it wasn't about being great ball players, or nowadays, I don't know what it, what it is nowadays, to be, I don't, know, I don't know what kids are today, what? A gamer. That's to be a great gamer, that's what it is today. But the Jews, historically, uh, throughout the ages, this is what they dreamt of. Like this is this was the pastime. This was the passion of the Jewish people for millennia, you know. And for us, it's such a big concept. It's Torah. We think of the Torah. We, you know, we think of the written Torah. What we read in what we read in, on the, in the, you know, the synagogue, the temple on Shabbat. It's written in Hebrew. It seems very inaccessible to us. That's a big problem. But the goal of this discussion is to try to, you know, give some insight as to the different reasons, the different themes of why Jews have been obsessed with Torah study uh, throughout, the, throughout the generations. I started a kind of a project. I said, okay, you know, everyone's talking about Torah, teaching Torah, I give Torah classes every day. What's it all about? Like, what's the goal? I was studying with someone today, just today, uh, in a piece of Talmud, uh, and uh, the Talmud says uh, that this is something, it's a law in the Torah that never happened and never will happen I'm thinking, goodness gracious, this is what we're studying. We're studying things that are entirely implausible. It's impossible. It's a situation that will never come, even come to pass. You know? And that obviously begs the question, so why is it written? You know, the Talmud here discusses. But you know, that is some, this is something we spend a lot of our time as Jews. You know, when we're acting as Jews, what are we doing? Right? We're studying Torah. We're observing the Torah. That is what defines us as a nation. What's it all about? Uh, so this is part three. Uh, so I started collecting, and I ended up, I said, I'll, I'll for sure about to get seven. So I, I, I scheduled a class, seven reasons why we study Torah. This I, I, must have been six to eight months ago. I figured, you know what, I'll get seven. I'll, I'll, I'll look around, I'll find some sources. I'll find seven. I'm sure I'll find seven. And by the time I get the first class, it was 17. And now, by today, I'm up to 23, and there's even more. I have to collect it all and organize it. Uh, but there's really a lot of different nuances and reasons why we study Torah and how it impacts us uh, as individuals. Um, so I just want to quickly go through what we did uh, the past two times. Just the, just the header uh, to perhaps entice you if you, haven't, if you weren't there by that class to go online and listen to it. I, I think you know, these, these are really uh, transformational ideas. Uh, reason number one that we gave was that it's a mitzvah. I think it's probably the simplest. Yeah, it's a mitzvah. It's like a mitzvah. It's like, you know, it's like uh, Shabbat, matzah, and Passover. That's what Jews do. They do mitzvahs and that's what it means. Okay, that's I think the simplest one. Uh, Next is the Torah is not just a mitzvah, it's about studying halacha, about knowing what to do. Like, you read the Torah, it gives you instructions, and instructions about how to behave as a Jew. You know, how to, how to wear tefillin, how to, how to make matzah. Right? We buy the matzah, it's already prepackaged. How do you make matzah? Right? There's entire volumes of Talmud that discuss how to make matzahs. There's millions of human hours were spent studying the laws of matzah. And, 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 and the laws of Chabetz and Matzah. Millions of hours. I'm joking. It's probably, probably way more than, probably tens of millions. I myself spent like a long, like, you know, because why? Like, this, the, 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 the element of Torah that deals with Matzah and Chabetz, that comprises an entire book of the Talmud that's studied in every single yeshiva. And there's, 
hundreds of thousands of people today studying in yeshivas. And every, it's, been, it's been like that for, 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 you know, since, since the Mishnah was written uh, 2,000 years ago. So you just multiply how much human capital, so to speak, it's a very bad word, but how many human hours have been sweated over this discussion? You know, this kind of opens up an entire world that, uh, that for many, it, it's, it's just, well, we just buy it, of course, before Passover. You go to the kosher aisle and you just pick out the matzah. Um, to receive reward, was, that was number three. Receive reward, now we said, obviously this was all expanded upon, but to receive reward, that can mean you know, the idea of the eternal reward. You know? One, if you accept the premise of God, and I'm making the presupposition that everyone here does, um, once you accept that, let's, let's assume that we accept that. If we accept that, we have to realize what we're accepting. Right? There's, there, there, there's, there's a catch, so to speak. Once you accept the idea of God, you have to, by definition, accept the idea of a purpose. Because otherwise, if there's no purpose, right, why would something of astronomical intelligence do something purposeless? That makes sense, right? If you accept the idea of God, you accept the idea of intelligent design, the idea of some great intelligence that's able to create things that are beyond our capacity to even think about how you would go about engineering that, uh, and if it was all made, it was all made for a purpose. And if it was there for a purpose, and we, uh, we have deduced throughout the years that the idea of being good uh, is part of that purpose. Uh, this is something, I know we, we, we could belabor this point. Um, I, I've given an entire uh, five-part series on the idea of, of purpose and what God expects from us and how that all works. Uh, but in Judaism, we say that the purpose is for someone to exercise the free will to make choices to do good versus bad. Now, the next stage of this, I'm sorry if I'm, 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 I'm kind of running through uh, you know, some intense uh, philosophical ideas really quickly because I want to get to uh, you know, the feature presentation. But once you accept the idea of our actions mattering, there has to be reactions. If, it's, if it doesn't really matter if I do good or bad, then it's, really not, it's not purposeful to do good or bad. If there's absolutely no difference uh, whether or not there's no consequences, then it, it, it's immaterial. It's inconsequential, right? That's, if, if there's no consequences, it's inconsequential. Inconsequential. Uh, thus, there must be consequences. There are no consequences in this world. That is a simple, logical approach to the idea of some other world. Now, Judaism, we talk about the world of action versus the world of consumption. There's this world here where it's about action, and, but there's no consumption. Right? If you are the most righteous person on the planet, right, you could also have nothing. You could be destitute, your kids could be ill, your, your spouse could die, you're, 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 you could be faced with famine. You could, you could really have terrible things happen to you. Thus, we live in a world where clearly there isn't a strong link between behavior, and kind of godly influence, so to speak, as how God influences you. That's clear. I don't think I want to make the argument contrary. Uh, thus, um, by methods of, of that simple syllogism, it's clear that there must be some other locale where people uh, are treated in respect to how they behave. But that's a simple, logical approach to, to this issue. Now, I, we, we spoke about a few weeks ago here that uh, the Talmud brings about 25 sources from the Torah of the existence of this other world. 
Um, and it's a core premise of Judaism, Maimonides writes that if you don't believe in the idea of reward and punishment, and he breaks it down to four categories, but one of them obviously being the existence of this other world, if you don't believe in that, you got no portion, you got no part of the Jewish people. He says, you're excluding yourself from the Jewish people. And it's, it's, a, it's an important point. He's not just saying you're out of the Jewish people. What he's saying is you're, you're out of the loop of the Jewish mission, of the Jewish insight, of the idea of purpose in the world. His, if, if we could give a class on this, I think we've been doing classes on analyzing the 13 principles of faith in Maimonides. But if you break those down, it's essentially, he's telling you these are principles of faith because this is what underpins the, our entire Weltanschauung. Uh, uh, Right? which means uh, world philosophy or perspective. Because if, if, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? It means to be part of, 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 a, of a universal vision for what has to happen with humanity, what has to happen with the world. They have to quit alarm, right? What does that mean? It, it's something so grand. It means that there is this tremendous mission that has to happen, and we're going to be the ones standing at the forefront of this mission. But if someone says, hey, there's no purpose in the world, well, then you're essentially saying, I am checking out of the Jewish people. That's why it says, if you don't believe in these 13 principles, these sorts of principles are all necessary for us to have Torah, and thus for us to have purpose, and thus for the Jewish nation to be Jewish, you know, just to, to be defined as a Jew. Uh, thus, uh, perhaps when it says we study Torah, we, we, we gain reward, it's we just simply, you know, we become better people, and thus that behavior is reflected in reward, simply, potentially. Or, perhaps it can mean that we get reward in other ways. Uh, as we elaborated last time, we'll skip it. We'll, we'll skip the elaboration. Uh, moving on to number four. Um, to sharpen and hone the mind, there is nothing that is more challenging than Torah study. Or potentially. The Torah is very malleable in, in it that it can connect with everyone. You know, at Mount Sinai... Talmud says that there were 600,000 separate Mount Sinai experiences. Why? 600,000 people there. We do find in the sources that everyone's soul was there as well. And even non-Jews were there as well, which is interesting. Uh, but why would there be 600,000 experiences? It's just got to be there's one and everyone experiences the same thing. The answer is that no, the Torah can connect to us at our level. If you know nothing about anything, if you have a little kid, you, you teach him Torah on his level. You know, you say you got to honor your parents, something like that. That's well, that's from the Torah. You know, you say uh, do do to someone else. Right? You don't want your brother to to, to to take away your blanket. Why would you take away your your sibling's blanket? Well, what is that? That's one of the principles of Torah. That that you don't want to be done to you. Don't do it to other people. Right? You're essentially telling a core element of Judaism of Torah to a small child who's two years old. And then you have sages that have studied Torah their entire lives. They put in a lot of those millions of hours and they're still studying Torah. You know, and you, you have, you, I, you, I bring you people to yeshivas in Israel. It, it'll be the most mind-blowing experience of your life if you ever do it. I, I don't know about mind-blowing, I don't know, with VR now, who knows. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's, it'll be a transformational experience. Like you walk into, imagine walking into a building, okay, you walk up some steps, you're in an enormous room, auditorium, and people are sitting, not chairs like this looks literally like, a, like, a, like the most comfortable couch on the planet compared to the chairs people are sitting on. You know, <laughs> benches, these old rickety benches, uh, and then uh, yeshiva students, each like, one, like the two feet separating each bench, like nothing. You gotta, if you want to actually go to the bathroom, it's like worse than in a stadium, you know? Like you have to like, pivot your way out. Now, 
you walk in and everyone has a little stender. What's a stender? A stender is this little stand, a little lectern that is, is it's just one of the marvels of, of, of engineering that it's perfectly designed to, be, to hold your book whether you're sitting or standing. If you're sitting, you can lean it back against you. And if you're standing, it, it, it goes up, so to speak. Brilliant. So you see, imagine seeing a thousand young men and a lot of old men sometimes, it depends which shiva you're in, in this room, each one got the same book. It got a book and, 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 a, and a study partner. And if you've been to a library, it's really quiet. Right? The first thing you'll notice is how loud it is. I'll tell you, I, I was in I was yeshiva, the biggest yeshiva in, 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 the war, in the world is in Israel. I was a member there for several years. I'm in the yeshiva. And we were in, they, had, they have a bunch of different base medrashes. Base medrash means a house of study, like where people study. And I was in one of them that had, had like a really low ceiling. Like, <laughs> And it was like almost like a long cylinder, and it, the the cacophonies that were that were bouncing off the walls there, the sounds, the din. I, I had a, I remember I was I had a, I remember thinking this. I had a study partner. He's sitting twelve inches away from me. Okay, we're studying. We're trying to study. I, mean, I can't hear what he's saying, and he can't hear what I'm saying, and I'm screaming. And the guy is he's not more than eighteen inches away from me. Like, I, he's much closer than Alexi is from me right now. And I can't hear what he's saying. And I'm next to the door, so I'm, I'm, I'm next to the, the entrance, so to speak, where I'm not, I don't have the sounds coming from every side. That's and I remember, take so long to maybe, <laughs> maybe, like, and, and I'm sitting there, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I remember going home once, and I was hoarse. And not because I had gotten, not because I went to like a ball game or something, I just was studying Talmud, and we didn't take any breaks, so you do four hours of screaming on top of your lungs, just so you can hear you, and then you're hoarse, right? Um, but it just the, the intensity of the, of the intellectual pursuit is, is, is astounding. Like, a thousand seats, every single one of them is taken. You know why? Because there's 1,200 people that potentially sit there. So it's basically the biggest game of musical chairs in the world. Right? The yeshiva has a philosophy that you always have, you know, if there's six to 7,000 students at the yeshiva, you always have between 4 and 7% less chairs and seats than people. So that way, every, every single room is completely full. And if you're not there after 20 minutes, someone else takes your seat for the rest of the day. So everyone makes sure they've got to be there in time. You know? and, and then the guys that, that don't have a seat and don't, are not able to pilfer someone else's seat, you know what they do? They take their chair and their stender and they drag it and find some sort of a stairwell and they sit under the stairwell. That's what you're going to do. You walk, you, you walk to the stairwell, like, people are sitting in the stairwells. What is going on in this place? What's the deal? You know, people studying outside, inside, be- between benches. It was insane, you know. But but you know, it's just a remarkable, remarkable place. You know, and what are they studying? They're studying the ancient texts. What's the deal with these people? They're studying two thousand year old texts. But the truth is, nothing hones your mind more than that. And if only for that. By the way, in South, I read this recently. There's a whole article. Google it. In South Korea, they're obsessed with the Talmud. Mm-hmm. Apparently, apparently, they were asked, like, why are Jews so successful in so many different fields? And they did the research, and like, well, the Jews have been studying, like, honing their minds and, like, you know, just, uh, just incrementally becoming more intelligent generation after generation because they were studying this Talmud all the time. And despite being oppressed and, 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 and mistreated and marginalized in every way, they still are able to be creative and intelligent, able to amass information and organize it and, you know, be creative and innovative. Like, 
And they said, hey, let's get ourselves some Talmud. So apparently, I don't know all the details about it, but apparently they have, is that who, anyone heard about this? Yeah. Yeah? yeah Apparently this is a huge thing where they study Talmud. They're teaching it in grade school. In grade school. Really? Yeah, yeah it's insane. Kids, Talmud. I've heard some of law school teachers Talmud. Really? The concept of law through Talmud. What's that? Yeah, but the thing the thing about Harvard is they probably don't teach. They probably say no. Talmud is Talmud. Nothing to do with you know. There's like the separation of, uh, of well, of church and state. Well, synagogue and law. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, either way, that so it's, it's something very eye opening. Um, but even Talmud, I want to point this out. Like even Talmud, you could study Talmud, and on a very superficial level, you study Talmud and you just read the Talmud and see what it says. And read it, understand it, maybe read one or two commentaries, and move on. Or you could literally spend months on a single page and going deeper and deeper and deeper. So there's the concept of the horizontal learning versus the vertical learning. You know, it was um, uh, someone once someone once asked the question uh, of the Chazanish, um, what is the definition of a Talmud Chacham? Anyone heard the term Talmud Chacham? Talmud Chacham is, is the Jewish word for Torah scholar. Talmid Chacham, which, mean, uh, which actually incidentally means, Talmud means a student. Chacham means a, a, a wise person. It's like a, a wise person who's still a student. But anyhow, that's, that's, the, that's the terminology for a wise person, a scholar, a Talmid Chacham. So someone asked Chazanish, how would you define a Talmid Chacham? What does that mean? So he says, someone who's able to study 40 pages of Talmud in one day, and able to study a single page of Talmud over 40 days. Now, you guys are like 40 pages. I can read 40 pages. Who can read 40 pages? Uh, I don't know if there's a person in the Western Hemisphere that can study 40 pages of Talmud in a single day. Uh, like, most people, like, if you spend your first day of Talmud, and you want to actually understand, like, some Talmuds are a little bit easier, but if you get like one of those really intricate, knotty discussions, you could spend weeks just to try to understand just the basic flow of, of one page or one paragraph, or, you know, 12 lines of Talmud. The, the great scholar is able to study 40 pages of Talmud in a single day, but also, conversely, able to study in 40 days, spend all of his 40 days on one page of Talmud. And how is that possible? You need to study it. And, right? If you're doing 40 pages of Talmud in a single day, well, you're doing 40 pages of Talmud in a single day. That's it. Right? That, that's your pace that you're moving in. How could you possibly slow it down? Are you going to read it backwards? You're, you're just going to slow down? Right? Just read every, every word 800 times? Well, what are you going to do? But the answer is because we, we have no idea what this means. This, this, is, this is the most malleable and um, um, study that we could possibly do. On one end, yes, there's a superficial or like a, a surface level studying. But the more you go deeper into a discussion, the more it gets deeper. You know, that's, what, that, that's the way the, 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 the scripture itself defines the Torah as a rucha me'eretz mido ruchav minyam. It's deeper than the ocean. That, that's the definition that, that, that says the scripture about the Torah itself. Broader than the land. Right? So you go, you go drive. I, I drove through these United States uh, last week. This is a very broad and expansive land. It is vast. 
<laughs> I can assure you, right? It's enormous. Like, as far as I can see in every direction, that's what you have. With land, that's what you have a Torah. As far as I can see, bread in, in, bre- in, in breadth, but in depth as well. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, and it's pretty incredible that it has such lasting vitality to, you know, to this day. Uh, let's quickly go through uh, just the headlines. I want to get to some new material here. Uh, to achieve unbiased intellect, we are, have a tendency to have perverted intellect. We have a tendency to have our desired outcome in mind when we, when we engage on intellectual pursuit. So if you say, I want X, if you're a defense attorney, I remember I was thinking, I had a conversation with him recently. He's an expert witness. He's an expert witness. That's what he does. Well, one, of, one of the things that he does. He's an expert witness um, uh, for, for high-profile um, legal cases. Um, so he was talking about someone who was accused of a crime or someone who committed a crime, allegedly. And he was sure, and he's in prison, and now they want to get him out of prison. So family, very, very wealthy family, is hiring him to be part of their team to try to get a retrial or a mistrial or whatever. So he was asking me a question because he, he wanted to have some, some Talmudic source in something. But uh, I was saying, well, what the guy, what if the guy actually did it? And to him, like, it didn't, it didn't even register to him. He said, of course the guy's innocent. You know? And that's what a good defense attorney does. You have a presupposition of innocence, and then you figure out how do you get, how do you get to the destination? Well, that, you know, that's what defines you know, your quality as an attorney. But the destination is clear. This person is not guilty. Right? That's what you have to do. Right? But uh, unfortunately, in our other pursuits, where we're not acting as a defense attorney, when we need the soundest of judgment, right, we, have to, uh, we have to use sound, sound intelligence, sound intellect. And we have it, potentially, but we're very likely to be duped and to be perverted and to be drawn in the way that we really want, so to speak. Right? If you have a, 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 a quandary uh, and you want to figure out which one is the right way to do, right, one of them is a lot easier and one of them is a lot harder. I'm sure that this is something with that programmers encounter every single day. You have two approaches. Which one should we do? We should do the one that is easier, less of a schlep, or we do the one that is uh, maybe the right one. You know? Easier when you get patient. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> you know, but, but this is something you're familiar with. And then you, you kind of, you're like, mm, I, don't, I want to go home already, right? Let's just, I'll just, you know, I'll do that. And you, you give yourself some uh, you know, justification for, for your behavior. You're able to assuage your behavior with your intelligence because that is just the human condition. And we're able to convince ourselves of something that is logical when it is really just what we want. You know, but the Torah teaches us... Is the door open again there? Yes, no, I have this mission uh, gas. Um, so the Torah teaches us that... Um, that uh, it, it, it compels us. Thank you so much. I'm so weird. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I just I have a I have a I have a idiosyncratic eccentricity. A few of them, but one of them is doors closed, especially bathroom doors. Uh, anyhow, sorry. Huh? I just close the door and I'm good. <laughs> uh, to empower and awaken the soul. Uh, and then to counteract our Yetzirah in more in three ways. Number one, to channel it. Number two, to forget it. Number three, to eliminate it. Uh, to achieve love of God and to fix character. Let us start with number 12. To achieve Tikkun Olam. Now, we kind of hinted at this. Right? When we study Torah, right, we're essentially doing 
the, it's it's well it's it's kind of a it's a gateway to a lot of different things. Uh, when you study Torah, it's going to bring perfecting the world. Perfecting the world. If you had to synthesize the Jewish mission in two words, it would be Tikkun Olam because that's what it's all about. And how does the Talmud define Tikkun Olam for our? You know, how does the Talmud define our role as the Jewish people in Tikkun Olam? One word: Torah. Via our activities in Torah, that is how we perfect the world. Now, how, do that, how does that work? Which is an interesting uh, idea. Um, I, I, I think that uh, there's a few ways that perhaps it works. Um, perhaps uh, when we study Torah, well, we're studying the Word of God and we're bringing the idea of God to the world. That's probably the simplest understanding. But either way, just I think if we ask uh, most Jews who are associated with Judaism in some way, how would you define um, the Jewish mission in, you know, in the world? And they would probably say, more often than not, you'd hear Tikkun Olam. I think that's a fair argument. How does the Talmud define our role as a nation? Tikkun Olam? One word, Torah. Essentially, it's telling us via Torah. It might be observance of Torah. It might be studying of Torah. Maybe it's both. That is how we do it. So if you want to ask, well, why are we studying Torah? One of the, a very good answer would be Tikkun Olam. We'll move on to the next one here because I, I, we're going to finish in time. Uh, today. Uh, and this one, I think, maybe be a little controversial. We'll get into the arguments here. Who's ready for some uh, polemic? Anybody? Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, in Israel today, um, there is a major, well, it's not today, but there's a major uh, issue of controversy uh, in the secular and religious camps, or between the secular and religious camps. I would say perhaps one of the most, perhaps the most polarizing issue, political and religious issue in Israel, is the idea of these yeshiva students not going to the army. Now, as you may or may not, yeshiva students not going to the army. Yes. Um, And we have uh, someone who has experience in Israel, and would you agree that's one of the critical issues of controversy in the world? Yeah? Sounds about right? It rises once a couple of years. Right. So it was, it was big, like they thought it was a big political issue uh, a couple of years ago. They passed legislation, they revoked legislation. But either way, this is the way it's been. It's been since 1948, essentially. There has been a provision in the law of the land. The law of the land is mandatory conscription of men and women. Right? All men and all women. And in fact, Israel is the only country in the entire world that has mandatory conscription of women. It's very interesting. Doesn't seem like so. I guess maybe it is progressive, um, right? But Israel is the only country that has mandatory conscription of women. It's possible that their military needs just uh, per capita are, are that great, maybe. But either way, that's the law. Mandatory. Because you're 18 years old, you're going to the army. Now, the uh, even in Tel Aviv, 50% of the people don't go to the army for one re- reason or the other. But either way, that's the way it is in Israel. You know, my dad's Israeli. My dad went to the army. I actually, did it four years back in the day. Uh, you're 18 to 21, you're in the army. That's the way it is. Afterwards, you want to go to college, fantastic. You want to go to backpack in America, you want to go sell Dead Sea uh, uh, stuff in, in the Memorial City Mall. Right? Whatever, you're on your own. Now, that's the way it is. In 1948, they were instituted that full-time yeshiva student, someone that's Torah to, umanato, someone who's Torah study, that's what he does, they're exempt. Well, they're not, not, it's not technically exempt. They could defer it. 
but they can defer it, and once they defer it till the 26, you can defer, 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 then, then you're off the hook, so to speak. So, so are they doing it to get out of service? Well, maybe there's some people that are gaming the system. That, you know, that's, there's, there's, all, there's always gonna be people gaming the system. Um, I know that my, my dad was a yeshiva student, and his dad had a yeshiva. My grandfather had a yeshiva. And my, grandf- my father, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't cut out from full-time study. He wasn't, still isn't, right? Is they just not cut from the same, you know, got cut from the same cloth, and they say? He just, he just not, it's not, you know, it's not for him. And then he's 18 years old, and he's, he's, he went to one yeshiva, ended up in a different yeshiva, and now he's like, he, is, he, he was done with yeshiva. Fantastic. Um, so he went to his father and says, listen, uh, technically, if I, uh, if I register your yeshiva, I'll be, be able to be exempt from the army, or at least defer from the army, and then, you know, so, uh, hey, wink, wink, do we do something like that? And his father said, absolutely not. <laughs> of course not. He says, if you're not in yeshiva, you go to the army. Uh, and I think that that's probably uh, the, the, the prevailing perspective. I, of do course, there's some people... Do yeah, of course, there are some people that gain the system, but like in, like in everything, you know? Um, but remember, like, you can't get a job. If you're officially registered in yeshiva as full-time studying, you can't, can't actually get a job. You can't, let's see, you can work under the table, whatever, black market, maybe, I don't know. Um, but it's not, it's not that easy to just say, oh, I'm in yeshiva, and then go, go off and do whatever, whatever it is that you would want. You won't be able to go to university as well. If you're officially registered in yeshiva, you can't be registered in yeshiva full-time and also go to university. Um, but either way, that's the way it is. Full-time yeshiva students, they're exempt from the army, and that's the way it has always been. Now, the problem is, is that there's a very legitimate question it's a deep and sensitive moral question that there's, you know, two neighbors. One of them, you know, the child is going to yeshiva and he's, yeah, you know, just not exactly on, on, on the, you know, the enemy lines. And the other one was, the son's not going to yeshiva and they're in Gaza. And they're going door to door looking for terrorists, imperiling their lives for the sake of the nation. Is that really fear? Is it fear that one child is safely uh, uh, ensconced in the yeshiva you know, far away from any rockets. Is that fear? And that, in fact, this is a, is a, it's a very hard question to answer. And I, I, you know, I'm not trying to take a stance on the issue at all. I'm just trying to tell you that this is, and this has been, the, this has been uh, at the forefront. Even I, have, I found a letter online that Ben Gurion wrote um, about this issue. He's like, even though he spearheaded the effort to allow yeshiva students to defer army, army service, but he wrote a letter to the chief rabbi of Israel at the time. He says, listen, I, I don't know. It's, it's a very grave question to try to ask. Is, is it really fear? You know, this is a, you know many, many Israeli uh, soldiers died in combat. And what did they die for? They died, they died for country. Is it fear that some, some, some Jews, some Israelis are obligated in that? And if they don't do that, they go to prison if you try to, you try to dodge the army? While other, while other uh, Israelis are able to just stay in yeshiva? That is a very, and it's a very polarizing issue because on one hand, you have uh, the, the people that are sending their kids uh, to the army, and, you know, or people themselves that go to the army, they don't see the value of Torah study. They say, wait a minute, I'm studying Torah? You're studying ancient books? And, and, and this is what you're doing? You're, 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 a, you're a parasite. That's what they call them. They call them parasites in, 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 in the secular, in the, some, not some people, in the secular uh, 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 portion of society say these are these are parasites they're living off our hard work 
They're not doing anything to, to benefit society. Um, what could possibly be the perspective of the people? Well, what's the argument? What's the justification of saying, we're going to study Torah, and we're going to let everyone else fight, fight our battles? So, I, I, now, I, I, once again, I want to make it very clear. I'm not taking a stance on the issue. I'm just saying that it's important for everyone to understand what is the rationalization of the people that are saying we're studying Torah. And you're not going to force us to go to the army. And you know why? Because we are doing more for the safety and security of the citizens of Israel than the people in the front lines. That is their argument. Well, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, but this brings us to number 13. And that is to save our brethren, Israel, and the world from destruction. Via Torah study, this is how number 13 goes. Uh, via Torah study, when you study Torah, when any Jew studies Torah, when someone, especially someone who dedicates a life to Torah study, they are saving the world from destruction, they're saving the Jewish people and Israel from peril. Well, that's a pretty bold statement, right? Don't you think? But essentially, the argument goes, this is the argument of the people who, who are in favor of continued deferment of army service for yeshiva students. The argument is, it's not that it's not the responsibility of yeshiva students to take care for the well-being of the state. It's the opposite. It is their responsibility, and they're doing more than anyone else. Crazy idea, of course. They don't, they don't know how to shoot a gun. They wouldn't know. Most yeshiva students, they wouldn't know what to do with the gun. You know, they wouldn't which side to, you know, which side to hold that. You know, they have no idea. How are they protecting so this is this idea, uh, and there's, I, I have a, a whole series of sources um, that, that um, uh, for example, um, one that Ben and I learned together, uh, Ben uh, 1.0, that is, uh, and the Talmud says um, that God made a pact with the world. God created the world conditionally. It's a condition. What's that? If you study Torah, great. If not, I'm taking it all back. We're, we're, retur- we're, we're returning the clock. It's before uh, time, and, time and space and matter, and we're all done. That's what it says. One source. Another source is actually... Go ahead. Yeah, so, so, well, it's, it's, well, their argument is, is that, uh, oh, let, let, me, let, me, let me, first of all, there are some, there's the Hester program, if you heard about that. Hester means like an agreement. Hester means like a, um, uh, where it's kind of like a, a compromise. It's like five-year plan, you know, 14 months or 18 months, I don't know that details, in, yeshi- in the army and the rest of the time yeshiva, and they go back and forth. So there are some people that try to kind of do both. Um, there are, there are. I'm sure there are those that go to the army uh, after yeshiva. A lot of those, and I'm sure there has been someone uh, that goes to yeshiva after the army. Uh, so, so you know, those are nice ways to uh, to kind of you know do both. Um, but the argument that they would present is that it's not like the army is something which is more important than yeshiva. So your argument is, hey, uh, go to the army, do your dues, so to speak, and then go to yeshiva. They're saying, no, I'm doing my dues in yeshiva. You know, so why would I go? Why would you go to the army uh, when you could e- do even more to save the, the country by going to yeshiva? Which is obviously a crazy idea. But the argument is based upon the idea that when we study Torah, 
we're preventing conflict. That the conflict only comes because there's lack of sibling correspondence. Thus, it, it, it's even more important than, uh, than trying to uh, deal and combat with the conflict is to prevent the conflict. That's the rationale. Uh, another source, this is a verse. Can I Go ahead. This is, this is an indirect question about your students. Never. Is there, in, in Israel, is there a reform conservative in the Orthodox? So, uh, in Israel, there's a, a um, predominantly, it's not even called Orthodox, um, but there's there's a small conservative and, and also a small reform contingency in Israel. Do they have yeshivas also? Uh, they have, uh, they have, but it's, 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 um, it's very, very small, exceedingly small. Even the United States. You know, besides for Hebrew Union College, but how many students are in Hebrew Union College? How many students are in, in, in JTS in Manhattan? I don't know, maybe 100? You know, even more than 100 uh, students in, 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 in JTS? I don't know, I don't, I don't think so. So it's not really comparable, I'm sorry? Yeah, like how, how many full-time students are there? I, I don't know. It's, and, 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 and studying Torah, I don't, even, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you would even classify as yeshiva. A lot of them are just there for cantorial school or rabbinic school or whatever. I was just wondering if they had, if they had the same um, exceptions. The I'm, sure they, I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would. Yeah. If it's a full-time... They yeah. tried to pass legislation just in the last couple of years and didn't pass. They're, we're talking about 50 people. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah. It's exceedingly small. In fact, it's actually you know it's a and this is a, another very controversial issue, um, but in 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 Israel, I even mentioned this once before. In Israel, the the rabbinate they control and they uh, streamline uh, a lot of the life cycle events. So you know you have in the United States you have uh, the conservative uh, movements, you know network of synagogues and schools and. Conversion and all that, and there's standards for everything. You have the reform, and you have some renegade rabbis doing whatever they want, uh, and you have the orthodox, and even amongst the orthodox, is a very nice spectrum. Uh, while in Israel, it's, there is governmental oversight uh, in the in the form of the rabbinate, and they control marriage and divorce, for example, and they control conversion. So, in essence, even though it's controversial, it's not egalitarian uh, on one hand, and no one's happy because. Uh, unless you're, you know, almost no one's happy because a lot of people would say, well, it's not religious enough, so to speak. And the reform are not happy because, they, they, you know, they're not willing to, uh, to be as flexible. Uh, but on the other hand, at least you know what you know. You know, you know, you know, you know that there is a certain universal uh, standard, national standards for all issues of, of kosher, of, 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 of synagogues, etc., etc. Um, So it varies. Um, typically, in well, it, it varies tremendously. Some people are in yeshiva for a yeshiva high school, and that's it. That's the last time they ever see the inside of a base medrash. Uh, there's some people that are in their 60s. I know I met people in their 60s, in the, especially in the yeshiva that I was in, that they haven't stopped studying for for years and years and years. They're still studying. They're full time, full time career scholars, and they're not doing it to try to write some sort of uh, thesis or doctrine. No, no, they're just they want to study. So, question like, how are they earning their living? 
So either their wife works, or they have uh, they have some side business, or they hustle, or they I don't know they, they tutor kids. I don't know what they do, uh, but they, you know they, they, it's the very good question. You know that's yeah, but there are some people that do it. Well, it's know? not like twelve hour days. Right? Sometimes it's eighteen. I'm not even joking. I'm not even joking, guys. I'm being wow. entirely serious. Like it is a lifelong dedication. Well, most yeshivas, they'll, they'll take you even if you don't pay anything. They, they may have a, 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 a salary, uh, I'm sorry, not a salary, a, a, a tuition, but you know, the yeshivas, they're not in the business of making money as opposed to universities. Okay? I said it. Um, <laughs> everyone knows it's true, and I said it. Uh, they're the business teaching Torah. Uh, and therefore, they're not going to say, oh, you can study Torah because you didn't pay enough money for it. Kind of like I, I think it's a, it's a it's going to be a condemnation of a lot of American schools that charge their their membership and they make participation in core synagogue uh, programs contingent on membership, and they have bounces at the doors. Like we're and it's it's crazy. You think about it. they put bounces at the doors in Rashani Yom Kippur to make sure people that don't have tickets don't get in. Like Who else would do that? The story of how he. Yeah, well, well Hill is a good question, right? Yeah, Hill, he went to the he went to the ceiling. Yeah, he couldn't afford it, and then they saw it, and like, okay, it's you know, it's worth. Tell a story. Tell a story. Yeah, huh? Hill Oh yeah, the Hill raps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell a story, Hill. Uh, well, from from what I from what I know, it's uh, um, in I guess in the past the the uh, the only way to get in into the Shulah study you had to pay, and it was. You know, kind of expensive, so well, he couldn't afford it. And like you said, they well, had so every day he would take half his money. Hill, right. Hillel was a, a wood chopper. That's what he did. And he was, by the way, Hill became the Nasi, became the president of of of, of the Jewish people. Uh, but he started off his career; he was very poor. Go ahead. He take a, every every day would take half his money and give half of it for his family's president, half of it to, to get, get admission to the. Uh, to, to, to the house of, of, of scholarship. So a lot of so basically one day he didn't have any money and yeah the money that went him in so he, he basically he, he, he got on he, he climbed up to the roof of the ceiling and he, he basically you know listened to you know to the the uh, study and everything else and I think he it, it was so cold I think it snowed it's, it's like the only time that it snowed or something like that yeah and, and like he like he was like you know, I don't fall asleep or he like kind of froze or something yeah and then and then they noticed they noticed like. Oh, like, the light. The, the yeah, light, exactly. The light, yeah. Pretty crazy story. Yeah, so yes, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Why are they charging? And then they kind of like, okay, it's, you know, they kind of rethought the whole idea of, of the cost and things. And yeah. Uh, but actually, it, it does flip. You know, um, the, the idea of a colo uh, is where uh, students who are uh, veteran students, they actually receive a stipend from the yeshiva. Uh, it's a nominal stipend. Uh, it's, it's a pittance, but it's something. So it's not going to cost them money. It's actually um, they're going to get something for, for it. I remember when I first got when I first. So it's usually typically after after a student would get married, they, they join the kollel and then they get a stipend. I remember when I first got married. So I was in kollel in Israel, and I I I'm like oh, and guess I'm getting paid right. What do you think they get paid in a month? In the colo, no, not 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 the colo in Houston. That's fancy colo. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's a 
Huh? No, no, it was 450 shekels, essentially $100. That's not paying for anything, I assure you, even in Israel where the cost... <laughs> the cost, with the cost of living is, uh, and they were like usually four to six months late because they had to fundraise all the money for him. Um, yes, yeah, so it's it's not exactly a place where people go to get wealthy. Um, either way, um, the Talmud additionally says uh, back to uh, item number thirteen. The Talmud says that um, it describes someone who has no portion of the world to come. And it all, it, it had, there's a term for it, it's because one, one of the people that has no portion of wealth to come is the Apikoros. And the Talmud says, well, what's an Apikoros? So one of the uh, answers of the Talmud is that an Apikoros is someone who says, what did the rabbis do for us? What are they wasting their time studying ancient texts? What a waste of time. Someone who says that has no portion of wealth to come. Why? And Rashi points out that they don't realize that the world is only existing in merit of some old crusty rabbis in Israel studying Torah. We're sitting here in, in relative comfort, in, in great comfort actually for me. This couch. <laughs> <laughs> right? And we have no idea that there are people going to bat for us. Right? There are people literally whose job is to make sure that the entire world doesn't just implode. That's what they do. And then we go and say, well, what are they doing for us? What are they doing for society? Right? They're parasites. And it's the exact opposite. The, all the world is only, is, is only there from, uh, you know, in, in their merit. I remember in, in 2006, there was a big war, a 34-day war in Lebanon. I don't know if you guys remember. 2006? So many wars that you like, have to keep track of which one's which. Uh, but basically, the war started with uh, uh, two, two soldiers were kidnapped. They weren't actually kidnapped, they were actually killed, but then they took their bodies and they said, oh, we have them, they're still alive. Uh, and then they started a war, so they sending rockets uh, from Lebanon, Hezbollah, sending rockets. And um, this was at the end of the semester. It's actually right now, like right now, right now in Israel is the end of the of the semester for the yeshiva, uh, and there's awards going on. So, um, and it's getting closer and closer to the time where everyone's on break, and you know you kind of have to unwind. But the yeshiva schedule is very rigorous, and I was looking forward to their vacation and planning it. But there's a war going on. So I remember um, um, the Rosh Hashiva, uh, he gave a, a speech and he said. Uh, you know, what, what, what are we doing? You know, this is our war. Like, essentially, this war is being won or lost because of us. And he said, I want to make sure that, that we are doing our job, our responsibility, to make sure that this, this war is successful. I want every student at the yeshiva to write, a, to, yeah, to write, I told you about this. Did I mention this before? Did every, um... No, no, no. He said, I want everyone to write a, a, a Talmudical essay. Why? He brought some source that says that the best kind of Torah study for saving humanity and the Jewish people is Chidushi Torah, Torah novel, novel ideas of Torah. And I remember walking into his office and he had stacks, just stacks and stacks and stacks of, 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 um, of contributions, of, of Torah contributions that people gave to him. Pretty remarkable. Um, 
So I, I think that you know this is really at the core of the issue. And obviously, if you don't understand it, you don't. You know, if you never, you've never heard this issue, then and you want to encounter or or engage in the debate, the political debate, you have no idea what the rationale is from one side of the issue. Like if you've never heard of this idea, then it sounds ludicrous. It sounds ludicrous, you know. But we have many sources. I brought you, brought you three three sources here. That uh, that you know, they talk about this idea that Torah study is what saves the world from destruction. You know, there was in Volozhin. Volozhin is a city in Lithuania, and the first modern yeshiva was established in Volozhin. And they had a 24 7 365 schedule of someone studying Torah. So, if you were a student of yeshiva Volozhin, they would give you at the beginning of a week. They would say, okay, from four to seven on Monday night is your job at the post. Right. You and your and your and your your, your, your study mate. You, you have to make sure at that time, right, irrespective of the normal yeshiva schedule, you have to be you have to be studying. Why? Because there always has to be twenty four seven three sixty five someone studying. Why? Because we're saving the world, and we can't take a second off. We take a second off, the world's done. And for years and years and years, that's what they did in the in the yeshiva there. You know, I always say, thank God there's there's Jews in America and Jews in, in Israel and Jews in Europe and some Jews in Asia. Why? Because then we always have at one point in time because of the because the change because the change. Yeah, there was a, a story about Rabbi Kamenetsky, who was my great uncle and my namesake. Uh, he was a Rosh Hashiva in, in the United States uh, and in Europe as well. But um, it was once it was after Yom Kippur, and uh, and after Yom Kippur, the first thing he ever wants to do after Yom Kippur is uh, is engorge themselves with food. Right? You haven't eaten for twenty six hours. You're pretty hungry. And and Rabbi Kamenetsky, the, the, the great rabbi, he show, he shows up two hours late for the breakfast meal. And no one can figure out why. So someone figured out that what he does is right after Yom Kippur, he studies for two hours. Why? Because he knows that this is the most yes. vulnerable time Everybody's for the world. Because <laughs> everyone else is saying, let's eat. Right? So this is the time when it's specifically it's important for us to study, and therefore we're gonna make sure that we, you know, he said two hours, at least for two hours, make sure I gotta, you know. That, you know, put the world on my shoulders, so to speak. I mean, this is a, an incredible idea, I think. Um, I think it's transformational. Like, it, it just ups the ante. It's like, what, what are we doing when we study Torah? We're saving the world, you know? Uh, of course, it has the political implications, I think, or at least it should be part of the, of the debate. Uh, and that's actually very interesting, because even the opponents of this uh, cross-the-board blanket uh, deference policy in Israel, even they they concede that there should always be a, 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 a yearly allowance of about eighteen hundred students that should be allowed to go to yeshiva, which is incredible. Like, if you say that they're doing nothing, then they're doing nothing. You know, but they're not saying right? even the the secular approach to the issue. They they still appreciate this idea, I, I think, and that the importance uh, of of, ha- of always having Jews that are dedicated. To, uh, to perpetuating Judaism and Torah. But I think that the difference might be, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the students who are in the yeshiva, they're taking more literally. Like they're literally saving the world by studying Torah. That's their position, that's and right. The secular are saying it's, it's very symbolic and it's, it's a mm-hmm. nice spiritual thing to know that it's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. I also think that, that that the secular position can also be that it's not necessarily about saving the world; it's about perpetuating Judaism. You know, so there's there's other elements to it as well. Uh, moving right along, number fourteen, um, and we have 20, 20, 22 or twenty three. I'm going to go through them really quickly because I don't want to keep you guys here too long. This is to create new worlds. You know, I, I think that our perspective is. That, you know, God's in control and we're just these puppets. You know, I remember there was once this, uh, this person trying to make the argument, this, this really deep, convoluted, philosophical argument, that we're just here, it's like a dream, we're not, we don't, we're not really, we're, we don't really matter. You know, it, we don't really matter, it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, it's as if we're in a dream and it's, we're not real. Only God's real. I think there's an element of truth to that because only you know we we're told is the very baseline of Jewish theology is that only God has lasting value. Why? Because everything is dependent on God. God's not dependent on anything. Right? Once you establish that principle, well, then only God matters, really. But I think that misses in a crucial point, and that is the idea of God partnering with us. We say in the verse, Hashamayim, Shamayim, Lashem. Thank you. The, the, the heavens are for God and land is for us. This is our place. The idea being that as humans, we have the responsibility and the opportunity to do things, to do things good or bad. That's the idea of our free will. And thus, our actions matter. Uh, so we say that God partners with us in deciding what happens in the world. Right? Who is in charge of the world? Well, of course, God's in control. But our actions, good or bad, impact what happens to us in the world. Um, so the idea of our actions really making a difference, we find in, in, in regards to Torah, uh, in the Talmud, where it says that uh, Adam was upset. I don't get the details of this Talmudic uh, uh, analysis. But it says that Adam was upset because he wasn't able to create worlds. Only via Torah do you create worlds. So this is an idea. I don't know exactly what it means, and I have, I have some suspicions what it means. But the idea is that via Torah study, you're able to create worlds. You are essentially playing God, so to speak. What do you mean? God creates worlds. What are you doing? You know, we're, we're, we're puppets. No, we're not puppets. We're creators of worlds via our Torah study. Because if the world was created with the Torah. Thus, no, finish the point. So Torah study. we study Torah, yeah, but, but the problem is, is that how do you quantify that? What are these worlds? Are we? I agree with you on a thousand percent. I don't know either. I have a suspicion, and that's, but I'm putting that out as, as, as an independent uh, idea um, just out there. But there's this idea of creating worlds. And, and, I'm, and, and number 15, I'm going to say, is going to be something which perhaps is the meaning behind it. And that is uh, that, we, that when we do mitzvahs, we create spiritual realities. I'll tell you what I mean by this. Kilo alalechem levad yechiyaha adam. The verse says that it's awesome. Uh, that man cannot subsist on, on bread alone. Right? What, is, what else does man need? Uh, this is from Deuteronomy 8 uh, 3. Uh, the word of God. What it's saying is, is that we have a misperception of what the nutrition that we need. 
We think we need bread, water, and shelter. What's that? Uh, uh, not Pascal. What's the other guy? He says, "Oh, shelter, water, and security." Maslow. Maslow. Yeah. Maslow Pascal. Sorry, I got, got mixed up. <laughs> uh, Maslow's. Maslow's. Uh, pri- what's it called? The principles or pyramid? Pyramid. Maslow's pyramid. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, basic needs, right? So that's what we think. We need bread and water. We need, we need oxygen and safety, whatever. Uh, the verse, the verse, the verse in Deuteronomy. This is the Torah. This is not the rabbis inventing it, right? It says that you don't. It's more more than that. You need the word of God. Well, that's what, exactly what he's saying. He's saying you cannot study science, Torah, whatever, if you are hungry. Like that. True. What the is saying. Well, right, but but, but okay, <laughs> that's true, um, but. Does does the pyramid include no, Torah study? Okay, so then it doesn't. So then, so then, it, so then it is so in, in, in opposition. And now, now, so what does this mean? Um, so um, there's many sources to this, uh, but the idea is, is as follows: uh, We have a body, we have a soul. Body has needs. Some bodies are more needy than others, as we well know. Um, and <laughs> you're like, I need a coffee. I need a coffee. I need a coffee. <laughs> Well, no, your body needs a coffee, right? Right, but soul has needs as well. Soul has an agenda as much as our body does. Our problem is that we don't feel our soul. We have no sensory relationship with our soul, so we have no idea what our soul actually needs and wants. Right? It's possible that we're we're suffocating our soul, and we have, we'll never know, or our soul is very happy, and, and, and we have no idea because we're not linked in a sensory way. We don't feel what our soul feels. So if your soul was depressed, you wouldn't know it. If your soul was delighted, you wouldn't know it. If your soul is hungry, you wouldn't know it, and you have no idea how to satiate. However, the Torah is telling us that man, man is his body and soul. Your body only needs bread. Your soul needs uh, needs uh, needs uh, needs Torah. Now, there's going to be a time where you're not going to feel your body and you're only going to feel your soul. Where the relationship is going to be reversed. And that's what we call Lama Ba, this next world. Where your soul first and you don't even feel your body. And the agenda of the body is uh, inconsequential. Just like, for most people, the agenda of their soul is inconsequential in this world. And then what are you going to eat? We go to the store there's no stores. You know what you eat? You eat when you create Here, here is the place where we create the sustenance that we're going to live upon when in in a place where only spiritual sustenance matters. That's that's the only thing that has any value. That's the only thing that we need. That's when we do a mitzvah. We create a little sandwich. (laughs) We're creating a sandwich, and that sandwich will have with us, it's figurative, not a literal sandwich, (laughs) <laughs> but it's like what kind of sandwich is it, is it, is it, is it a deli sandwich is it, you know I don't like sandwiches you know I like pizza right? that's what we're doing you're creating a certain spiritual reality and that will nourish your soul for eternity you study, you study Torah you're like I'm studying Torah there's no relevance well it does have relevance in a very very practical way but in a very different world than the one world we're in today the only way for you to make sure that you're not starving hungry right, when you come to this other world is to make sure that you are ready for it. So essentially, perhaps when we say when you study Torah, you're creating a world, what it means is you're creating this environment in which 
That's what you're going to live in. You have what you earn. What you don't earn, you don't have. The way the Talmud describes it, it says, whoever works on Erev Shabbos, whoever works on Shabbos, uh, the, the, before Shabbos, in Shabbos Eve, right? then you have something to eat on Shabbos. If someone says, you know what, I'm not going to cook till Shabbos. I'm not going to cook. And what happens? Shabbos comes, you can't cook anymore, and you have nothing to eat. Same thing is, is that now it's era of Shabbos. Now it's, now it's, it's prior to Shabbos. Now is the time where you prepare. You're not consuming now. You consume later. What if you don't prepare? You're not to consume. Right. How do you prepare? What, what, you know what you do? You create as many sandwiches as you possibly can. Get some variety. Learn lots of different times. Talking about every mitzvah, 613 mitzvahs. Each one of them is a different variety. The 613 needs that we have. In fact, we're told that the 613, uh, 613 mitzvahs, uh, corresponding to, three, 600 and, to 248 limbs and 365 sinews. What it's essentially telling us that if you do all the mitzvahs, then you have the perfect you. For the next world, you're good to go. You're complete. You got all your limbs intact, and you're all your sinews all, all, all ready to go. What's it telling you? It's telling you that you're ready to go. You're fully formed. Well, what happens if someone says, "You know what? I'm not doing. I'm not doing one mitzvah." Okay, then you're not fully formed. You're saying, "I don't want the left uh, index finger, right? I don't want to fulfill this mitzvah." You're running away from what it is that's going to compose you. This world that you're creating in some other reality. And then you're going to come to that reality and say, dude, why does everyone have elbows and mine is like this? Well, okay, because you didn't do whatever mitzvah brought to you, that brought that reality to, to, you, to you. So you say you don't want it. Okay, you don't want it. You don't get it. You know? It's obviously very hard for us to visualize this because we, we have no evidence of this world. Have, have you seen it? Did you know anyone that went there and came back? Uh, I'll see it and believe it. You know, if I see it, I'll believe it. And that's what we think, unfortunately. But the, the, the Talmud and the Torah goes out of its way to make this as, as clear as possible and bring in evidence and logic and, 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 and all of that um, to, you know, to make this idea really uh, penetrate us. Um, but then when we, when we study Talmud, we do mitzvahs. What does that actually mean for us? We're, we're creating a world. And this is the kind of world we want to live in. What happens? You get to the you. You don't want to be the only one. It's like when you go to the party. You know, I was once at a party. It was a party, and I was like, I was the only guy that wore a tie. I felt so. Con- I was like, I was like, I was walking around like this, and I was like at the end, at the edge of the of the of the room. It was enormous. It was a tent. It was an inauguration party for 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 one of my former yeshivas that I went to. And I was the only guy in the entire was 500 people in the building. Everyone's wearing a tie, and I don't have one. So probably most people didn't notice it, but like, it's the most self-conscious thing for me. I, you know, I have a hard time as, as, a, as a registered introvert. I have hard times in, in social settings to begin with. Um, you know, you can do that. What? Then you can register. Well, they don't show anyone in their car. <laughs> 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 we never, we never, that's very funny. <laughs> No, no, not no. It's just that that's that's a weird feeling, right? Actually, like I, I left as fa- almost as fast as I possibly could because I felt weird. I felt like I was underdressed or like uh, it's a weird feeling, right? So I was thinking, like, what's going to be when we, you know, after 120 years of, of fruitful life in this world, 
And we're going to come to, in a, sometime, in the, sometime in the future, this is according to many, many sources in Judaism, there's going to be a world that we're going to come to and we're not going to be wearing a tie. And who knows, if maybe we're not wearing shoes or something like that. Well, this is something figuratively. We're not going to have the very basis that everyone else has. You know, the Talmud says, there's a midrash that says, everyone's going to be jealous from their friend. Everyone's going to be jealous at that time. Like, really, is this the utopia that I was promised? Everyone's going to be jealous from their friends? Yes, because everyone's going to feel so consumed with agony and grief that his friend, the guy who was the schlepper back, in, back on, on planet Earth, that was the guy that was studying Torah, and look what he has now, and there's nothing that I could possibly do to rectify that. And it's a terrible feeling. Obviously, you can imagine. Like, uh, but what it's telling us, for our purposes, is that via our Torah study, via our mitzvahs at large, what we're doing is a lot more than an isolated act of a mitzvah. It's a lot more. It is a certain reality. It's from the, top, the, the, the famous mission that says, it says, someone does a mitzvah, any mitzvah, you create an angel. You do a negative, you do a sin, you create a, a bad angel. It's trying to make this idea real to us, trying to make it tangible to us. When you do a mitzvah, you see nothing. You don't, you don't see like on the side, you know when you have those little games on the iPad, you, your points go up, you know when you, when you eat the coins, right? So you see like, oh, look, you don't see that with, with your mitzvahs. You have no way of, of, of analyzing, of, of having the satisfaction of, I got coins. Not, by the way, it's not like those coins ever translate to like money or anything like that. You know, it's like, uh, but I am on uh, level 612 on Candy Crush. Anyone guilty as charged? Okay. I've never played Candy Crush in my life. And I have a policy. If anyone ever offers to give me lives in Candy Crush on Facebook, I unfriend them. <laughs> like, that's it. I'm done. It's a good policy, right? It's, 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 there's more games that are more addicting. But, but it's pretty addictive. It's a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, it just the reason the reason why I'm like I'm so hurt that someone would think that I want lives in Candy Crush. I don't think I, that's a joke. I don't think actually I unfriended someone, but uh, but still, I think I actually did. But moving around, I hope they don't listen to this. Like I'm like ah oh we're not friends on Facebook. I thought we were. <laughs> uh, moving right along, and I think that this this you know perhaps this is the most important point of them all is that. If we can internalize this idea that our mitzvahs are real and just the same satisfaction that we have when you build something or when you accomplish something or you have a good day at work or you write a nice email and it comes out really nice or whatever, anything that you do and you, you see the, the, the fruits, you, you don't have that same appreciation. But in your head, you know, when you try to create the, the, the imagery uh, uh, conjure the imagery of, of having something real and impactful like that, that, then it'll make it obviously much more worthwhile to do uh, and, uh, and I think it's, 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 it's transformational like it's, this is a different Judaism I think like it's not just you know let's sing uh, the song, let's sing um, you know uh, uh, and let's, uh, let's eat matzah and do the Seder plate and, and light the menorah like it's not just perpetuating uh, just tradition. Yes, it's about this tradition, of course, but it has meaning for each and every one of us on a very deep and fundamental element of our life, and more fundamental than anything we could ever imagine.
that thought, I think, could change our Judaism. Um, more, you know, just transformational way. Move right along. Um, I'm going to put 16 and 17 together, just for, eh, and 18 together, um, uh, to be close to the Almighty. That's uh, 16. Uh, 17 would be to return to the Almighty. And lastly, to preserve the relationship we have with the Almighty. So it's essentially three parts of our relationship with God. Number one, to get it. Number two, to preserve it. Number three, to return. And I, I have sources here, for example, um, says, from the day that the temple was destroyed, God does not have his shechina rest in any other place aside from the four cubits of halacha. If you want to try to recreate the spiritual reality that existed in, 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 in the temple, the only way to do it is via Torah study. Additionally, you find someone studies Torah, even an individual studies Torah, God is with him. I, I think that perhaps this, I'm saying, this is telling us that, you know, one of the crucial goals of us as Jews is to ha- develop connection with God. Well, how do you develop connection with God? Via Torah study, number one. Number two, preserve it. How do you preserve it? You want to have, you have the relationship, you want to make sure the relationship doesn't go downhill. I think this is uh, on a relationships uh, level. A lot of people, you know, they're, they really love their spouses. They, they really love them. But over time, the love erodes. This is very common. Uh, it's very unfortunate, very sad. Uh, now, why would love erode if you love someone you love someone? It's like the guy who told his wife, says, listen, they didn't make marriage. says, I love you. And if ever, anything ever changed, I'll let you know. And, the, and the, when the woman is crying to the counselor, he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't love me. He didn't tell me he loved me. He says, I, I did. I told you I loved you. And nothing changed. I would notify you if anything changed. You know? <laughs> um, but there is, a, there is a tendency... For, for, for people to fall in love and then fall out of it. And the question is, well, if you, how do you fall out of something? You know, it's bizarre, right? You fell in, okay, it's like you fell into the... Huh? I fell out of a truck. You fell out of the truck. But you fell in love and then what happened? Love doesn't self-perpetuate. If you don't work in it, if you're not constantly deepening it, then it's, it's regressing. And that's a reality. Uh, and same thing like that between us and God. We had a relationship on Mount Sinai, you know? And now we got the Torah. And what is the Torah? The Torah is the thermos that preserves our relationship. There's a part of the Haggadah that we say on Passover that is perplexing. And he says as follows. Ilu kirvanu lefnei harsina. You remember the dayenu part of it? Right, right, there you go. So, um, um, which I'll translate. If only God brought us close to Mount Sinai, but didn't give us the Torah, that would be enough for us. And the obvious question is, wait a minute. We got to Mount Sinai, but we didn't get the Torah. It's like, if only I got a ride to the pizza shop, but I didn't get any pizza, I'm good to go. The whole purpose of going to the pizza shop is to eat pizza, right? Well, if only we came to Mount Sinai, but we didn't get the Torah, we'd be happy. No, we wouldn't be miserable. Well, why, is, why would you slip us to Mount Sinai if you don't give us the Torah? That's the question. You guys love the question? Uh-huh. So um, the answer is that at Mount Sinai, even before the Jews got the Torah, they were in a level of closeness with the Almighty that's been almost unparalleled since. Right? 
they were scooped out of Egypt with all the miracles of splitting the sea and the manna, all that, uh, on the wings of eagles, and they're at Mount Sinai, they're at the pinnacle and the apex of the relationship with God. That's what it means to be brought to Mount Sinai. It means to have a relationship with God. The Torah, that is the preservation of that relationship. Someone, it's the thermos, so to speak, that keeps the heat for years. The way Rabbi Rucham Lubavitch explained this is that imagine you had a thermos that's able to keep water hot for thousands of years. The advanced technology, you have a thermos, I don't know, it gets lukewarm by noon. Right? You, you brought your coffee and put it in a thermos, it's lukewarm, right? By 11 o'clock. Um, imagine the thermos that kept the water piping hot for thousands of years. That's what the Torah is. The Torah maintains, preserves, and, and uh, uh, nourishes the relationship we have with God at Mount Sinai. If only God brought us to Mount Sinai. If only He had this tremendous relationship with us at that time, didn't give us the Torah, it would be enough for us. Why? Because the relationship of the Torah, or one element of the relationship of the Torah, well, um, vis-a-vis its, uh, our connection with the Almighty, is that it's, pres- it's going to preserve it. Go ahead, Brad. When Moses led the Jews to Mount Sinai, did he know that he was going to get the Ten Commandments on his journey? Yes, I think it was uh, self-understood, yeah. Um, uh, let me bring you a source for that. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm trying to, it's escaping right now, especially under pressure here from you guys, all these piercing guys. But, um, Ben? Well, first of all, the Ten Commandments. He's <laughs> <laughs> not one of that. Look at I read about that. Ten, 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 ten. So, uh, but it, I think it was, it was pretty clear. So, he was on, so, so they were all on a mission to get the commandments. Yes. Well, commandments, the Ten Commandments is just the experience of Mount Sinai. The Mount Sinai, in the entirety of their, uh, of their stand, Mount Sinai, was almost an entire year. And that's when Moses was teaching them the Torah. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments were the first day of that, oh, actually, more precisely, the sixth day of, that, of, that, of their, uh, of, of their um, encampment at Mount Sinai. But they stayed there for an entire year, and what were they doing? They were studying Torah for Moses. Moses, God tells Moses, right? Every, every other verse in the Torah is God tells Moses to tell the Jewish people, right? right. And that's when, when did the bulk of that happen at Mount Sinai? Okay, so, and lastly, to return to the Almighty, there's, a, there's, there's an incredible a midrash that says as follows. It quotes a verse in, in Yirmiyah, uh, in Jeremiah, uh, where it says, Osia zavu and God says that the Jewish people abandoned God and they didn't observe the Torah. And the, uh, and, the, and the Midrash explains it by saying that if only the Jewish people abandoned God but adhere to the Torah. Why? Because if they study the Torah, the illumination of the Torah will bring them back to God. So what it's saying is, is that in our relationship with God, what's more important than faith? Torah. Why? Because even if you don't have faith, you're, you don't believe in God, you're abandoning God. But you, ha- you stick to the Torah, there's some power in the Torah that brings you back to God. Thus, in our relationship with God, three elements are enhanced with our Torah side. Number one, it develops a relationship. Number two, it preserves it. And lastly, it, uh, it, it, uh, it, it returns it, recovers it uh, back to its uh, former glory.
Pretty remarkable. Number 19. How are you guys doing here? We're getting close to the end. It feels great. Uh, number 19. Uh, to live. And I kind of mentioned this a little bit um, uh, earlier. Uh, but we have many, many statements in Jewish writings. Number uh, one, Torah is our life. Um, Rabbi Akiva famously described uh, Torah and the Jewish people that um, if, if you take a fish out of water, right, it's going to die. So you take a Jew out of Torah, he's going to die. Right? The Romans said, Hadrian said, the Jewish people, anyone who teaches Torah publicly gets executed. That's what he said. And Rabbi Akiva says, I'm teaching Torah anyhow. So the fellow came over to him and says to him, why are you teaching Torah? Everyone's going to die. He says, okay, well, we're going to die regardless. If we, if we don't study Torah, we'll die. If we study Torah, we'll, you know, maybe, maybe we'll be able to survive. But if we don't study Torah, we're for sure going to die like a fish out of water. Additionally, we find that the Torah is compared to water. This is in the Talmud as well. So if it's compared to a fish in water, it's, it's for us, it's water. G'dola Torah shehino senes chayim. It's a Mishnah in Perkevos. Torah is great because it gives life. Um, uh, this obviously, I think, could be very much understood in light of what we said earlier, that this, there's this life that we need, just like our, our soul needs life, and how do we give it life? Uh, how do we give it air? How do we give it water? How do we give it, how do we give it food uh, via, via Torah? Um, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Um, uh, let's move on to number 20. My favorite, because it's so ambiguous. It's great. Uh, to earn allies in other places. And I'm just going to read what the Talmud says here. Rabbi Kiva says, he quotes a verse, Zemer b'chol yom, zemer b'chol yom. Um, and the, 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 the verse says here, Nefesh amol amol alone that a, a, a soul that toils, it toils for him. The Talmud says, what does that mean? If someone toils in Torah study here, his Torah toils for him somewhere else. There's a very famous Rashi here. Rashi says that um, the soul beseeches the Almighty, I'm sorry, sorry, the Torah beseeches the Almighty on his behalf. Which... To me, it's incredible. Like, if you could like choose any ally in the world, you know, you probably would choose the United States first. You know, Russia, or China, India. I don't know who you would choose. But here, the Talmud saying we could choose the Torah itself. That could be the greatest ally ever, the greatest advocate for us ever. And it gives this this vivid description. It says, "You study for Torah, you toil in Torah here, and your Torah toils for you elsewhere, and it toils on your behalf in front of God." Whoa, whoa, mind blowing, remarkable. Now, I'm, I, I'm leaving that big, I don't even know what that means. But I think I kind of want to have an advocate like the Torah. Wouldn't that be nice? Isn't that, like, the Torah itself, the Holy Torah, that's going to be our advocate? I'll take that. That's number 20, to earn allies in other places. Um, to be protected and saved. This is, once again, very, I'm going to leave it very ambiguous uh, because it's one of the most important Talmudic um, teachings regards to the importance of Torah study is in the book of Sota on 21a uh, and it gives a description Kiner mitzvah of the Torah or that a mitzvah is a candle and Torah is a light 
and it gives a description of a man who was walking in the desert at night, and he was the animals were coming after him in the wild, and the, and he was he would trip over over the rocks, and he would be uh, captured by by uh, uh, heathens and conquistadors, and then he gets a candle and he avoids this problem, and finally it's the day and he avoids all problems. And it's saying the idea where they're comparing, and, and it says Torah Madno Masa Torah protects and saves. I don't. I, once again, this, I'm leaving it ambiguous because it's a very, very uh, a detailed description of everything that happens. Um, uh, there's the, the different uh, different dangers and how the Torah uh, saves someone from those dangers. But either way, I'll take it to be protected and saved. Um, Twenty-two uh, to achieve lishma. Now lishma, if you were to uh, perhaps uh, the, the, the epitome, or the, the apex of Torah greatness or of Jewish greatness is the idea of Lashma. Lashma means altruism. It means doing good for the sake of doing good. The problem with that is that it's not possible for us to do good for the sake of good because like, we, we, we're driven by motivation. And, and the Talmud in several places says, yes, you can do it. However, there's a way to do it. There's a, there's a trick. What's the trick? You have to do it for um, uh, for um, ulterior purposes, and that will bring it to uh, altruistic purposes. Right? Someone should always study Torah and do mitzvahs, even for ulterior purposes. Why? Because via doing it, not for its intended purposes, right? For ulterior purposes. That will bring you to Lishma. Thus, Torah is indeed the conduit to the highest form of greatness we could possibly have. And lastly, I'll put a cool little one for the end, number 23, to achieve dominion over nature. Someone mentioned already earlier that the, that the Torah was the blueprint for the world. Thus, if you want to become a world maker, like we mentioned earlier, you want to have the Torah. So we find these great stories of these rabbis that kind of had nature in their hands. And the question is, you know, you have rabbis re- reviving dead, reviving dead like no big deal. No big deal. There's so many episodes in the, in the Talmud about that. You know, there's one rabbi, he's walking along the way and he sees a stream and it's bothering him and he says, let's split the sea. And he splits the sea. And it's kind of mind-blowing. How do they do that? You know, there's a great story about Rabbi Yochanan. Right? Rabbi Yochanan, um, he's studying Torah and every time he studies Torah, there's a bird, that, every bird that flies over him gets incinerated, gets burnt. So like he would finish studying Torah and then would go out, you know like, I, you know like when, you, when you park your car under a tree and you come back and there's a little bird poop everywhere? And by him, when he would go study, there would be birds everywhere. It's kind of the opposite. Just birds all over, just, just the corpses of birds everywhere. Because any bird that flew over the restricted airspace would get shot down by the Torah influence. You know, and you're like, whoa! There's like some sort of meta thing going on over here, where there's this crossover that his Torah is influencing the physical world. You know, and the reason is because if you have such mastery of Torah, then essentially you have mastery of the world. So everything is dependent upon you, so to speak. Thus, the idea of reviving dead, no big deal. You know, obviously, I don't know anyone who could do this nowadays, uh, but I guess on, uh, on, and that's why I don't know how practical it was. Kind of this, this wild card idea. Um, Ooh, that's a good question. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. No, it's a good question. I like that. 
he was studying the word of God and surviving because the pigeons and everybody was dying. So he goes out and he has fried chicken. What? He's got food to eat. Fried chicken from pigeons. <laughs> his life. So um, what's actually interesting is that there's a few episodes in the Talmud and Talmudic literature talking about fire and t- these rabbis and having fire around them. Uh, for example, Acher. Acher was this great rabbi who became a heretic. Uh, Acher, is, he was the rebbe, he was the teacher of Rabbi Meir. One of the great, great rabbis. And then he went off, so to speak. There's a whole story what happened to him. Uh, and... Uh, and he was once, he decided he's done with it, and he went, uh, and he went, uh, Acher means the other guy, or Acher, someone else. Uh, and he went on, on Shabbat, and he went to solicit a prostitute. Right? So that, that was the beginning of his undoing. Or not beginning of his undoing, but that was like, he's like, I'm out, and then whatever. And, and uh, the, the girl says to him, the girl says to him, wait, aren't you the famous rabbi? So he goes and it's Shabbos. He goes and he takes and he plucks a little flower out of the ground. And we know that on Shabbat you know how to pluck flowers out of the ground. And she says, oh, you must be Acher. You must be someone else. But that name stuck. And anytime you read it in the Talmud, it says Acher. Well, who's Acher? Who's the other guy? It's talking about this guy. Uh, and, uh, but either way, the, there's this narrative about his, 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 his birth and how by his, by his bris, Right? By the ce- celebration of his circumcision, there were a bunch of rabbis there. And the rabbis were studying Torah, and there was fire surrounding the rabbis. And there was the, 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 the Talmud says that they were studying Torah, and it was, And they were happy, like when it was given at Mount Sinai. And Acher's father was so taken by this, he says, Oh, I want my son to do this as well. So he put him in this highly intensive Torah, you know, he liked, like one of those Chinese kids that they, from the age of four they're going to be in the Olympics. That's what he did to him. You know? um, maybe that also contributed to he wasn't really healthy and balanced. That's why he, was, uh, you know, he went awry. But either way, this, the idea, that's, the, that's the other time I found him fire. Uh, one, one more time, oh, we might have mentioned this. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yichai. So he's in the cave. Remember him and, the, him and the son, they're in the cave. Remember that guy? Remember that story? And what happened? They come out, come out of the cave after 12 years. And what do they do? Right? They see a guy and he's wasting his time. Like, and the one they, he looks at his field, Rabbi Shim looks at his field and the field burns down. And everywhere, everywhere his eyes were going was where there was fire. And then he hears a prophetic voice, Shimon, he came out of the cave to destroy the world, get back to the cave. Goes back to the cave, comes back 12 months later and he sees a guy on, on Friday afternoon walking around with two flowers. He says to him, why do you need two flowers? One flower is enough. Which is the be the rallying cry of men uh, worldwide. You know, one new dozen, dude. You know, <laughs> one's enough. Uh, so, so he said to him, why do you need two flowers? He says, well, this flower is for Shamar, and this flower is for Zachar. One to remember Shabbat, and one to, uh, uh, and one to uh, guard the Shabbat. He says, oh, and he, he was at, he made peace with humanity. But either way, we see that there is this idea of destructive fire uh, via Torah. Now, the question is, well, if they were able to, if they were able to have fire, well, then Moses, who's much greater in Torah, he would have fire as well. I think that he there's, fire yeah, oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> in a mountain. Uh, but I, I think that there is an even greater level where uh, where the fire is not harmful, where the where, where the where the, uh, where the um, 
the influence of the Torah is not going to be uh, be injured. I think there's this sweet spot where someone's Torah is so great, but not quite great enough that it's not uh, detrimental for humanity. It's great enough to be impactful, but not great enough to not be uh, injurious. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point that you know it describes the under, the, the 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 greatest student. I don't remember who it was. It was, it was Hillel. Yochum and Zakai. I don't remember the exact. I think it was. I think Hillel had eighty students. Pretty sure this is how it was. And the greatest one of them is Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, and the weakest one of them was Rabbi Yochum and Zakai. And Rabbi Yochum and Zakai, the birds would die. Well, if, if the birds would die while flying over him, what would happen when the birds would fly over the greatest of the eighty students? Well, they wouldn't die. Why? Because his Torah was even greater. So I think your point that I, uh, you're bringing on a good point, that it doesn't seem to be a very valuable contribution to the world. But either way, it does demonstrate uh, you know, a certain degree of, 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 of dominion over nature that, uh, that we do find as, as, a, as a nice side benefit of the Torah. And I want to say another quick point with this. I feel, bad if I feel like the whole night I'm speaking really quickly. Am I? You're good, right? Huh? I am? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know why. I, just, I feel like I feel like it put me on, on fast forward, and you know, sorry. I apologize. I'll say this slowly. Let's start. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, there's the commentary in the Torah, uh, whose uh, name is the Orachayim. It was a 17th or 18th century scholar who was actually lived, who was buried in Israel, uh, which is very uncommon at the time. And he asks a very important question. And he says, we look at the Talmud, we find many, many examples of great rabbis doing things that are supernatural. We find rabbis splitting the sea. So what's the big deal that Moses did it? Why well, we the big deal, we split the sea, oh, you know, fantastic. What's the big deal? Rabbis, 1,500 years later, did the same thing. That's his question. And he answers, he says, yes. The reason why the rabbis could do it is because they have Torah. When you have Torah, you have dominion over nature. Moses, he splits the sea before the Torah. The only reason why the miracle is so important to splitting the sea, that's because it came before the Torah. That means it's clearly something, just divine intervention. Right? Once we have the Torah, and if you have dominion of the Torah, of Torah total master of the Torah, well then, of course, you have dominion over the nature, and it's no big deal. Thus, all the miracles of the Torah are only really that transformational because they didn't have Torah to perform them, which is, to me is a cool idea. Either way, I think that part three of our quest to find out why we study Torah, uh, uh, especially when, uh, you know, coupled with the other reasons, like this should be enough for us to really try to investigate and, you know, do some time on our own and like in, in invest some part, a portion of our, of our life and our mind and our, you know, and our, and our time. Uh, to to this, it's it's there's so much to it. It's so uh, uh, crucial, so essential to, to us in our lives that I think that it certainly warrants a good, long, hard look, and not the kind that says, "Okay, I know everything that's been there. I went through uh, four years of Hebrew school when I was six, seven, and eight, and now I'm good to go." You know, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, when they have some sort of basic rudimentary exposure, they say. Huh, I don't want to go to a Torah class. I don't want to study Torah. I've been there. I did the circuit. I know what it's all about. Well, no. You, you actually, you don't know what it's all about. You've never studied any of it. You know? Uh, and ironically, the more someone studies, the more they realize how little they know. 
Thus, if someone says, I know absolutely nothing about Torah, either they know absolutely nothing about Torah or they know a whole lot, they'll have the same reaction. Um, so that's why it's important, but not, not, to, not to approach it with the, uh, with the perspective of this is something um, you know, that I've seen before. Uh, open mind and try to let it, let it affect who we are and make us hopefully really, really great people, great Jews, and great um, uh, friends, great uh, colleagues, uh, and great Jews. And that's that, guys. Uh, and looking forward to seeing all of you next week. I will. Thank you. I'm sorry for speaking really quickly. <laughs>